This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. We are spending way too much money later in life giving marginal benefits to people. And really the unfortunate truth is that if we want to get another 20 years of life into the American population, we have to start investing in health when we're young. Dr. Molly Malouf is a San Francisco-based medical doctor, biohacker, and health entrepreneur. Hello and welcome to Llama, the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, my guest today is Head of Medical Science at Sano Intelligence. She is a data-driven, I think it's fair to say, biomarker-obsessed medical practitioner. She's smiling, it must be true. All about enhancing health and health span rather than treating disease when it inevitably happens. Dr. Molly Malouf, it's great to see you. So great to be here, Peter. Thank you. Is that accurate? It's about uh, hitting that problem before it occurs. It's prevention rather than cure. I really love that introduction. I might have to save that and use that in my bio. Oh, that's good. (laughs) It's good to be accurate. So Sano Intelligence, what is it? Sano Intelligence is a continuous glucose monitoring patch. It's a microneedle patch. So instead of it being a needle in your arm, like the current Um, CGMs on the market, which are clinical grade, we have a microneedle approach. So for a lot of people, putting a needle in their arm and wearing that for two weeks um, is concerning and scary. So we're going to be sort of an introductory tool people can use to put on their arm, find out through the course of a day how their food is affecting their blood sugar in real time. Is this something we could all get access to? Because obviously one of the issues, and, and this is something I'd, I'd like to do for myself, I haven't actually ventured into that area yet because mm-hmm. you, when you're biohacking, you can, I think you can be deluged with so many things you, you can monitor. And I, mm-hmm. I'm kind of quite strong on just doing one thing at a time or at least progressing slowly. However, if I did want to monitor my glucose, getting hold of a glucose monitor isn't that easy, is it, in this country? It's not. In fact, it's clinical prescription right now. And even if you have diabetes, type 1 or type 2, it's actually pretty hard to get one from your doctor and and get it from get it covered by insurance because a lot of times you have to be a fairly brittle diabetic to actually get the treatment you need. And so I personally feel like this is the best tool for monitoring glucose. And, it's, and glucose is the ultimate lifestyle biomarker. And I think it's actually one of the better longevity biomarkers as well. So let's dig deep into that. Actually, what I want to do is talk about you and your background and how you got to this point. But since we're, oh, we're sure. there, since we're, <laughs> since we're there, let's dive into glucose. Yeah. And uh, simple question, why would I want to monitor my glucose on a daily basis? There are so many different reasons. But the first one is, is that we have an epidemic of diabetes and prediabetes is happening far more commonly than we realize. In fact, around 80 million people have prediabetes and only 11% of them know it. And part of the reason why not everybody knows they have prediabetes, which by the way is the state of blood glucose being in in a fasting state between 100 and 120, and then there's also a postprandial glucose you can get tested, which is after meals. If that's too high, you can also get a diagnosis of prediabetes. So generally, this is the test when you go to your doctor, they say fast overnight, and you get a blood test the next day. That is your fasting glucose state. Right. You can also get a hemoglobin A1C to get a diagnosis, although it's not a very good test. It misses a lot of people. It's much more sensitive for diabetes than prediabetes. So the last remaining test for, for 
testing if you have prediabetes is a glucose tolerance test, which is when they give you a bunch of sugar and then they test your glucose after the course of an hour or two. Now, the problem with this test is that, A, it's time-consuming. Nobody does it. Nobody wants to sit in a lab for two hours. B, drinking a bunch of sugar is, in my opinion, not the healthiest thing you should have to do for your body. <laughs> and and, and the, third, the third problem with it is it's not a real-world um, experience. To me, the best test for your glucose metabolism is continuous monitoring because you can actually see how your blood is changing over the course of a day, over the course of a bunch of different meals, over the course of different exercise programs you may, might be doing. And... Um, but back to what I was saying before about prediabetes and diabetes, a lot of people don't know they have a problem before it's really they're really sick. And the prediabetic state is a pathological state, in my opinion, because all the research that I've done is showing that we're losing organ reserve when we increase our blood sugar over the course of our lives. Over the course of many, many years, our blood sugar can slowly climb, silently affecting us. It can affect our vision. It can affect our kidney function. It can affect our blood vessel function. And a large percentage of heart disease is related to poor blood, blood glucose control. So we're waiting till it's too late. And by the time you have diabetes, your body's already lost half of your beta cell function. And it's, it's, you've actually lost a lot of beta cell um, function when you have prediabetes. So I think we're, we, we really need to be thinking about blood sugar far sooner than the doctors are telling us. Are you suggesting that this is something we should therefore all be doing because uh, we, do. we, we could be preventing a condition that might simply not otherwise occur to us as being susceptible to? Well, it's not even just um, heart disease and diabetes, but cancer lives on glucose. If your blood glucose is high over the course of many, many years and you have a little bit of cancer, you're just feeding it fuel. So I think it's really important to manage blood sugar. It's like It's like a core core part of my practice at this point because um, if you have poor blood sugar control, you also, you also have impaired hormonal function. It affects cortisol. Cortisol can lead to insulin resistance. It can raise your blood sugar, but then it can also make you crave sugar. So there's this whole intertwined relationship between blood sugar and cortisol, blood sugar, and your thyroid, blood sugar, and your sex hormones. And if you don't have a good control, it can affect everything downstream. So tell me more about the patch that you're sure. developing. What, to what stage are you with it? We are getting better and better accuracy every day. We are hoping to launch in 2019. It is not an easy task to create new technology. I, for some reason, love working with really hard problems. And hardware companies are, my, in my opinion, some of the hardest problems <laughs> to solve because they involve you know, software, firmware, um, hardware design, you know, data interpretation and planning and product development and user testing. And so we're, we're doing all these things right now. And we're doing some small um, private clinical studies to test it with different um, interventions. So it's, we're, we're coming along. I would like to say that we're going to be, you know, hopefully launching in 2019. That's what we're, we're, we're really aiming to do. And in terms of the physicality of, of the patch, mm-hmm. how easy is it to wear? Do you realize you're wearing it? What, what does it actually involve on a daily basis? So you have to, the, the difference between our patch and the competitors is these other ones are disposables. And we have a pod that is a non-disposable pod that you will use and you will keep. And you'll put it into the patch and you'll wear it on your arm. And you'll take it out and you'll recharge it and you'll reapply with different patches. Ah. So we've got the microneedles that are disposable and then we have the pa- the little pod that's rechargeable. Um, the reason why is because we have a Bluetooth, right? So that, that, that syncs to your phone. Most Bluetooth-enabled devices are not disposable. <laughs> Most companies that are using, um, you know, the most cur- current continuous monitors are – 
are designed, like the, the Abbott Libre is designed to be a disposable patch. And so what we have is um, something that you put it on your arm. And, and you know what? The, the, the form factor currently, we're working with designers to make it a little bit cooler looking. But, you know, the biggest complaint we get is that people ask if you have like a medical device. Like, are, are you wearing a, a nicotine patch or something? So we're trying to work on it getting to be less med- med- medical looking because we really, want, we really want it to be a consumer product. But, um, you know, you don't really notice it much, honestly. You, you don't really you, – you feel it when you put it on, but you don't – you only just feel the um, – there's like a mechanism where it kind of – it just – it attaches to your arm with a spring-loaded device. A little bit in the, in the way that activity trackers are now being developed as, as rings or mm-hmm. almost accessories yeah. that you, you wouldn't otherwise blink at. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, it's going to take time for us to get to the point where we have – Wearables that are invisible, wearables that are very, very like imperceptible. I think we're gonna have to wait till implantables for that to happen, <laughs> which I personally would get if I could get a continuous glucose implantable. It would be amazing, and I would totally put that in my body. Now you mentioned the everything you've got to concern yourself with the the hardware, the firmware, mm-hmm. the presumably eventually the marketing and and that side of it. Yep. You're a doctor, and mm-hmm. presumably a lot of this doesn't come naturally. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Oh, you know, that's the thing about working in tech for the last six years. Like, I've worked with over 20 tech companies now. And so the the most wonderful part of my life is that, unlike most doctors, I have so much novelty. I get to experience so many different new technologies. I get to work with people who are geniuses at product. I get to work with people who are genius engineers. And I get to talk to people who are like signal processing experts and just absorb what they're teaching me, what, they, what I can learn from everyone, um, really enhances my own worldview and makes me more humbled about, you know, I think a lot of doctors kind of walk around with a perspective of that they know it all. And I have learned that through working with a bunch of technology companies that there is so much that I don't know. And in fact, the more I learn about that body, the less I realize that I I do know and the more that I want to research. And that's a big part of my life as well is just pouring through data and pouring through white papers. Have you always been like this? Let's go back to my original (laughs) thought. What were you like as a child growing up? I was definitely the kid in my family who like was in her dad's workshop playing with things and tools and taking things apart. And I remember I once took took apart a television right before I was about to pull out this spark plug. Apparently, my dad was like, "No, <laughs> don't do that. You're gonna blow up your face." Television have spark plugs in them. They have like they had some sort of plug that was generating that would have generated a spark. Okay. And, like, oh, I see. My dad said that if I would have pulled that out, it would have probably blown up my face. So <laughs> these were old te- old didn't. televisions. But I was also a child who was doing you know. Um, science projects on, you know, I was fascinated with the body. So they were always related to different organ systems. And I decided to become a doctor in fifth grade. I mean, it was like a clear calling in my life that I wanted to, I wanted to do this. I was reading Michael Crichton. I loved reading, you know, books written by doctors. And I loved Russian novels written by doctors. So I was kind of a strangely precocious kid. And looking back now, so making that progression, you knew you want to be mm-hmm. a doctor and the kind of training that you had as a doctor. Yeah. Did it live up to your aspirations? I mean, medicine was by far, medical school is by far the most challenging intellectual experience I've ever gone through. Um, and 
so it certainly lived up to the expectation of it being very hard. <laughs> it wasn't like I was one of those medical students who was like, oh, yeah, med school was a breeze. Because there are people who say that. No, not for me. It was hard. I had to study a lot. And in the process of studying a lot, I let my health fall to the wayside when I was in med school. And through that experience, I realized that I needed to take better care of myself. And so I started doing yoga and I started exercising more and started um, – Eating normal meal times, I was I stopped skipping meals. I started sleeping better, making my shirt, making sure I just like cut myself off from studying at night, and meditating. And I did all these things for my lifestyle because I'd gone to a psychologist because I was so so upset that I was like not thriving in med school. And he said, "Well, look, you're just not managing your your stress well." And I'm like, "Oh, so I'm not anxious or depressed?" And he's like, "No." I'm like, "He's like, he's like it's your responsibility to fix this." I'm like, "Oh," and. I took it seriously. And I did that and I dramatically improved my performance in school. I dramatically improved my brain function. I dramatically improved my relationships. And I realized that lifestyle medicine was something that I could pursue. There's an interesting parallel here, isn't there, between your own life and what you were learning in medical school, the, the classes that you were going to, that clearly perhaps weren't teaching you nope. what real life was showing you. No, not at all. And in fact, because of that, I decided to design a course for students. Um, called Physician Heal Thyself Evidence-Based Lifestyle. And it's funnily enough, I did this course the first year that the American College of Lifestyle Medicine by David Katz was founded. So I feel like there was a lot of people in the world thinking about lifestyle medicine at the time. And I just happened to be like a precocious medical student thinking, okay, we are not being taught about nutrition. We are not being taught. We were taught basically calories in, calories out. And I argued with my teacher because I was reading that book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. Right. And I was thinking, this is new science, and we're being taught out-of-date science, and this is kind of ridiculous. So I brought in experts who I thought knew more than my current professors did about things like functional medicine and integrative medicine and osteopathic medicine and, and acupuncture and all these things that we just, like, weren't being taught in an allopathic medical school. And it was a huge hit, of a course. Like, students loved it. I learned a lot. Everybody learned a lot. And it really sh- helped shape my worldview around how important it is that we care about our lifestyles because 80% of our diseases that we treat in hospitals are preventable. I would venture to say that most people, I would say the majority of people, it's just a gut feeling, still believe that a calorie in is uh, equal to a calorie out. The problem with that theory is that we are not a closed system, and we are also not a single organism. We have a microbiome filled with trillions of other organisms, and that affects our blood sugar. That affects our hormone metabolism. That affects a lot of things that we don't think about every day. Um, our hormones are intimately tied to our weight set point. And when people develop obesity and, and overweight over the course of many years, that also changes the structure of their brain, the parts of their brain that establish these set points, right? So you alter your body's physiology by the nature of how you um, how you grow over time. And the problem with calories in, calories out is that there have been plenty of studies showing that like people have literally done studies where they add more calories to their diet. What it does is it ramps up their metabolism like a thermostat. So you put more fuel on the fire, the fire will burn harder. If you Anybody who's ever fasted will understand that if you fast, you will burn much colder. You will literally turn down the temperature in your body. Um, there's this great um, episode on On Being by Krista Tippett about a physicist who was studying heat transfer and aging. And he basically thought – he basically felt that – Essentially, that he feels that like aging is is this, or essentially this process of time, like our body's changing over time. But one of the things that he said was that the difference in heat is what 
is how our bodies detect time, he, he was theorizing. And so essentially one of the theories that I have around fasting is that when you fast, you're literally turning down your body's metabolism and you're slowing down your, your body's ability to age as fast as it normally would be. I have a better explanation to that written out, but – I mean, we can get into fasting next. But well, I was, I was yeah. since you brought it up, and, and I've experimented with fasting. I know you have too. What kind of fasting do you do? And this is one of the, I suppose, irritations for me is that people say fasting, and it mm-hmm. can mean, it frankly, can mean so it can mean many so things. many different things. Exactly. Well, first and foremost, the initial concept of fasting is just not is like the period of time when you're not eating, right? To me, like the moment you stop eating is the moment you start fasting. And so well, you and I are fasting right now. We're fasting right now, but the problem is, is that. Um, it also depends on, like, when was your last meal, right? right. So, uh, you know, to me, like, when you stop eating is when you start fasting. And most people are eating six to seven meals a day. And so most people are not really fasting very much at all. Most people are also eating a late-night snack or a, a snack later in the evening. And the moment they wake up is the moment they start eating. So they're probably fasting for maybe eight hours if they're sleeping. And the problem with that is that you're pushing a lot of insulin into your body throughout the day. And insulin is a growth hormone. It's a hormone that puts weight on your body and keeps weight on your body. And so if you always have insulin in your body, you're going to be maintaining whatever weight that you have right now. So that's another reason why calories in, calories out is, is problematic. Because if you're eating a lot of refined carbohydrates and sugars, you're putting a lot more insulin into your body because your body has to compensate for that huge stimulus. And that over and it usually has to overcompensate by pushing out more insulin than it needs. And by doing so, you're putting your body in a growth state, in a state that's wanting to put weight on over time. So fasting is magical because fasting puts your body into a state of um, catabolism versus anabolism, right? When you think of the word anabolism, it's like anabolic. Think of like growth. Catabolism is breaking down. Now, there's some benefits to um, anabolism, like putting on muscle. There's also some benefits to catabolism like losing weight and autophagy. Autophagy is the way that we take out the garbage of our cells. And fasting is one of the best ways that you can activate those processes in your body. Autophagy, some people describe it as cells eating themselves. Exactly. Throwing them out of the body. I just think about it as like a dirty kitchen that someone cleaned up, put the garbage on the garbage disposal, took the garbage out, and now it's spotless. And, and fasting accelerates that process. It absolutely accelerates it. And you know, um, when I started getting into fasting earlier this year, it was one of my New Year's resolutions. I was like, I'm going to learn how to fast. And so I always recommend, because bodies don't like being shocked, um, to take your body and slowly ramp it up to the to the point of getting to the 16-8, which means 16 hours fasting, 8 hours eating. Um, that means if you're only – if you're actually eating for 16 hours during the day, you would like to go to – you basically want to either – um, eat breakfast an hour later or stop eating an hour earlier, whatever it takes to slow, slowly compress that that time period that you're eating to an eight-hour period and stick with that for a little while while your body adjusts. So slowly, hour by hour, week by week, get your body to adjust to this new re- regimen. If you can do it easily, you can ex- accelerate, accelerate the process. But then um, one of the benefits to getting to like a 24-hour fast is you're depleting your glycogen stores. And glycogen is your storage carbohydrate. It's your storage fuel. You've got about 24 hours in your body. But when you hit that point where you've depleted your glycogen in your liver, it's called the metabolic f- switch. And there's a lot of research that's happening in healthspan extension around how beneficial this metabolic switch really is to improving our health, improving our metabolism, um, improving our metabolic flexibility. And metabolic flexibility is this fascinating new term that I only learned about a year ago 
that is basically our ability to switch from um, carbohydrate burning metabolism to fat burning metabolism. And our ability to do that effectively and easily declines with age because a lot of people develop insulin resistance and lower insulin output as they get older. So this is the point at which you begin to move into what's known as ketosis. You're, right. you're burning fat, burning ketone yes, bodies. Yes, exactly. And you can burn, you can be burning fat and carbohydrates at the same time. The, what people kind of conf- get confused about is they think that you either have to be in full ketosis, burning only fat or only burning carbs. Most people are actually burning a little bit of each. And there's a really cool tool called the Lumen by Metaflow. It's this Israeli, Israeli, Israeli company that I met a few, about a year and a half ago. And they gave me their, this device, and you blow into it, and it actually shows you in real time what fuel stores you're burning based on this respiratory quotient, mm. which is a complicated way of describing the difference in um, carbohydrate, the difference in carbon metabolism by whether you're burning fat or, or carbohydrates as fuel. So it comes out as like a number, and. Um, the lower the number, the more fat you're burning, the higher the number. It the sounds like a, actually quite a, a nice, simple way to it is assess quite simple. where you are exactly. on, on that scale. I mean, it's a lot faster than um, pricking your – I mean, I have a tendency to just like prick my finger and test my ketones and test I do my that blood too. sugar. Yeah. But it's nice to just blow into something and have to do that without having to think, okay, like where am I at? It does – I think, um, you know, the, the company is really early. It needs a, it needs a lot of um, work. It's still like any new hardware company. But I think it's a very, very promising. So explain for us what is the benefit of, of moving into that keto Sure, keto adapted or keto fat adapted, adapted state. state. Yeah. Um I'm gonna preface this with I'm not a big believer that everyone needs to be ketotic. In fact, I believe that there are times and places in both our individual lives as well as the individual seasons where we will want to be more fat adapted versus more carb adapted. To me, carbohydrates are fast fuel that are great for burning when you are active. If you are out and you're running around and you're really busy and it's summertime and you're getting a lot of activity, you're going to eat more carbohydrates because you're going to need more effective fast fuel. In the wintertime when you're not moving as much, um, you know, burning fat and, and being a little bit more ketotic is better, I think, because it's going to keep you from putting on all that winter weight. Um, and I think it might reflect the way that humans evolved. Um, you generally would see more plants in the summertime that are able to be harvested, right? And then in the wintertime, you'd be eating whatever was in storage. Um, and fat is your storage. So, um, so yeah, that's one of my belief systems. But there's also this whole concept of different body types, right? There's different people who have, um, you know, there's like sort of the ecto, endo, mesomorph body types. Certain people that are just sort of big boned tend to need to be a little bit lo- lower carb. Certain people are going to be just higher fast metabolisms. They tend to be naturally skinny. They tend to eat carbs really easily. Then there's people like me who just are kind of in the middle, whereas, you know, for me, to, I have to be kind of careful with my carbs. I use them as fuel. They kind of reflect how much I exercise. But um, the, the concept of metabolic flexibility is that you're not stuck in just carb-burning metabolism, which a lot of people are stuck in because a lot of people just eat so many, so many, so much sugar and so much refined carbohydrates. They eat too many crackers, pies, pastries, breads, pastas, pizzas, all these things that have been added to our diets dramatically over the last – I mean if you really look at what's, what's problematic for our society over the last like 50 years – you know, since the 1970s, we've dramatically increased the amount of vegetable oils and refined carbohydrates in, a, in the diet. If you look at what those are found in, it's packaged processed foods. It's corporate-made food. So 
the, the easiest thing anybody could ever do to optimize their metabolic flexibility and optimize their blood sugar control is reduce these products in the diet and just switch over to three meals a day and then eventually get to two meals a day. And to me, that's like a superpower. If you can actually even fast for more than 24 hours without getting crazy, without getting hangry, which, by the way, I used to get hangry. Now I can fast for a few days easily. What, what's your definition of hangry? And, and can you give me a, a scientific basis for us? Sure. I mean, I actually wrote a, read a bunch of papers on this. Um, so hangry is when people get um, emotionally upset at a physiologic response that they're having that they are not adapted to. That's my definition. So when people are not adapted to food deprivation and they're eating only carbs all the time and they're on this glycemic response roller coaster where they're always – they're literally pulsing sugar, pulsing insulin – that causes a spike and a drop of their blood sugar, which makes them hungrier, which makes them riding this little roller coaster all day long. They cannot easily go a few hours without food and they get quote unquote hangry because what's happening is they're getting hungry and they're interpreting that as a negative signal that there's something wrong in their body because their body is actually in an abnormal state that they've pushed it into through food that's been hijacking their metabolism in a bad way, right? It's hijacking their brain and it's and it's affecting their metabolism poorly. These these foods that hit the pleasure, the bliss point, the fat, the, the salt, sugar, fat-laden foods, they are toxic for metabolism and they cause all sorts of derangements, including making our brains believe that regular healthy food doesn't taste good. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, but really fundamentally hangry is just people not being adapted to a healthy food supply. And of course, being hangry or angry while you're fasting mm -hmm. is the state, I think, that most people recognize as a result of not eating. And, sure. and, and often, probably most often, given as the reason why people don't want to fast because they think they can't do it. Right. The problem with being hangry is that, to me, it's a signal that you are not like metabolically flexible. Because because the thing is is that as you start depleting your glycogen stores, if you're not able to easily tap into your fat metabolism because you haven't built that metabolic machinery through the process of doing that metabolic switch occasionally, doing these occasional fasts, going you know, um, going lower carb occasionally, doing exercise regularly. If you're not doing these things, you're not actually able to build that machinery to burn fat effectively. And so when you start depleting your glycogen stores, it sends a signal to your body that you are in an emergency state because your fuel stores are low. You're like a video game player and your fuel supply is on the last bar. And that it, it can be interpreted as, oh my God, I am losing my security in life and I need to find food. It's To me, what's really fascinating is that I used to not be able to focus when I wouldn't eat. But now, now that I'm fat adapted, now that I'm able to fast regularly, I can actually – I mean, what's really funny is I'm actually more focused when I'm not eating. I was just going to say that. Exactly the same observation that once you become experienced in fasting, mm -hmm. whatever – and this does seem to apply to the different kinds of durations of, sure. of fasting. But once you become, to a point, experienced, that's – hunger turns into almost a sort of mental euphoric it high. Does. Phil Libin, I think yeah. who you know as well, mm -hmm. uh, who's been on this podcast, talks about this a lot, about that euphoria, that mental agility that you get through fasting, which is quite the opposite to being hungry. Totally. It's it's um, kind of surprising and astonishing. Phil and I were actually um, hanging out and he was teaching me all about his whole fasting regimens. And then I went and dug into the literature. And we're, what's really funny is that we had like a slight – this is kind of a non sequitur. We had a slight um, disagreement recently because I said 
Phil, I looked at my period tracker on my on my phone, and I've been fasting a lot over these last three months. And I think fasting affected my hormones because my my periods went from perfectly regular to irregular. And arguably, I was pushing myself pretty pretty in pretty challenging ways because I went from sixteen eight fasting to twenty four to 24 hours, to 36 hours. And this is like every week I would just add another challenge to 48 hours, to 72 hours, to another week of 72 hours, back to 48 hours, then 56. And I was just like doing all these extended fasts. And as a woman, I believe that our metabolisms are just fundamentally different in certain ways because we have different metabolic needs. Our bodies are really designed to reproduce and to feed babies. And so when we are without food for a period of time, it sends a signal to our bodies that, and this is what I believe, that we need to focus on self-preservation rather than reproduction. Because our body cannot do one. It's like if you are in, if you have a major life, life, life stress, for example, a lot of women will get irregular because the stress is a signal to their body that they're not safe. Your body doesn't want to reproduce when it's not safe. And so fasting too much can disrupt female hormones. So it's really, really important for women to recognize that you can go overboard. It's really, really – you have to be extra vigilant as a woman because women are prone to body dysmorphia. Women are prone to eating disorders. And so I think that like even though the last three months I have gotten so many physical benefits from fasting a lot, I've also recognized that like – I need to bring this like like just like I actually give a disclaimer like a cautionary disclaimer for meditation because meditation can cause psychotic breaks. Fasting can can activate all sorts of problems in people, including and especially women need to be careful about it. Yeah, and it's the disclaimer that I always give as well that uh, fasting, putting it simply, isn't for everyone. And I think we're all very individual. I'm going to disagree with you there. I'm going to totally disagree with Not you there. For everyone, I think fasting is for everyone. I think fasting is, in fact. Um, maybe there's a small percentage of people who have metabolic genetic diseases who absolutely probably cannot fast effectively because of some sort of, um, you know, abnormality in their body's makeup. But I actually think that most of modern disease is a massive fasting deficiency. And the fact that we have a metabolism that's still adapted to fasting and we haven't been giving it that signal enough means that like part of the reason why we are so sick is that we are never switching that we're never flipping the metabolic switch we're not exercising enough we're not um we're not doing the things that we that that our bodies have been evolutionarily adapted to do and so because of that i think chronic disease is, is a byproduct Interesting. Although I think I would, and maybe you will disagree on this as well, but I think if you are considering fasting, you, you need to take or at least have your doctor or a registered dietitian yes. take a good look at your, your life, sure. and your state of your body and, and your diet and yeah. just, just assess whether in the very short term, it's something that's sensible for you to do. Well, right. Like if you're pregnant or nurse, right. pregnant or, or, or breastfeeding, great example. You don't want to be taking the fuel and metabolizing it. It needs to go to building your baby and your baby's brain. <laughs> we right? may, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We mentioned Phil Libin. If you want to listen to Phil's story, and it is an extreme story. It is a great story. Uh, it's a great story. It's episode 22 of the podcast if you want to look in the index and, and find what uh, Phil has to say. And it brings me back really to my, one of my first thoughts, and that is there are so many different types of fast. Phil will talk about his seven or even 10-day complete water fast, and he... 
he loves it. He thrives on oh, it. Oh, yeah. That, he does coffee extreme. too, though. He does coffee, yes. There's <laughs> a little caffeine getting him through. But it's very different to your 16-8 or maybe a 23-1 oh, yeah. or a 36 Or the Prolon, hour. right? Or the Prolon, which I've done, which is the, described as a fasting mimicking diet. Mm-hmm. It's not a complete fast. So you eat maybe days two to five, about 700 calories, just over 1,000 on day one. Mm-hmm. So it's, an, it's an enough of a reduction. You certainly go into a, a ketotic state sure. uh, after a couple of days. Yep. And I, I've proven that myself. But you're not completely fasting. But mm-hmm. you are fast mimicking your body. Your body, I suppose, is tricked in a sense to, to think that you are actually in that It's really, really intelligent. State. It's fascinating, isn't it? Have, mm-hmm. you, have you tried that? I have tried it. I actually personally feel that it's easier to fast with nothing <laughs> than it is with something. And actually, that, that's something that I, I discovered through uh, a series of experiments I was doing with, with um, Phil on three-day fasts. And basically, I discovered that the fat fast that Jason Fung was talking about, where you get, have a little bit of fat if you, if you need it, that was actually the hardest fast for me. The easiest fast for me was the one with just straight coffee and tea because all the extra caffeine was really great for metabolism. And I, got, I actually dropped into ketosis faster than I did when I had extra fat because it makes sense. I was actually burning the, fat, the exogenous fuel versus, the ex, versus my own fuel. But um, I also found that um, – the, I did a fast with a three day fast with human ketone esters, and I, I felt th- I felt that that was somewhat helpful, but not. I, I personally think that the easiest fast for me was the one that was um, just coffee and and mm. tea. A lot of people say that uh, you, coffee and tea. So, did you find yourself consuming more caffeine than yes, you would normally during that definitely. time? Definitely. Is that okay? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really condone excessive amounts of caffeine. But as somebody who – because, like, it can actually disrupt female hormones and other people's hormones. But, like, I do drink a couple cups of coffee every day. And um, I love caffeine. It's, like, my favorite for sure, favorite drug. But um, definitely, you know, I, the amount of green tea I was consuming that one day was, like, the second day of my fast. I was just like, whoa. It was, mm. like, quite a lot. So you're now in the biotech world. You you mm-hmm. still see patients? I still do, yeah. In a sort of boutique practice Yes, exactly. Way. Just tell me about that. Um, well, you know, the best way to describe it is it's bespoke medicine. So I make made, I really do made to, made to measure medicine. So it's based on your body's chemistry. And by that, I mean your genetics, your metabolomics, your clinical chemistry markers, your hormones, your microbiome, your immune markers, your micronutrient tests, your continuous heart rate variability monitoring. I like to look at the body from a perspective of it's like a data science, right? So I want to get as many interesting signals as possible and then figure out what's noise, figure out what's actually something that that, that reflects what's going on in that person's body and their life. And so I take a two-hour medical history. So I, I ask so many questions to an individual. And I have about 20 different questionnaires I go through to figure out what's going on with their health and what's going on with their lifestyle. And through that, I'm able to figure out, okay, where are the biggest deltas that we need to close to optimize this person's health so that they do not decline further or that they become even higher performing? And so for I – mean, let's just take an example of a 50-year-old woman, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. Is that coming out of – let's say it's an, an otherwise you – know, there's, there's nothing significant wrong. She's not really complaining mm-hmm. of any problems. What are the main biomarkers? I know you look at a lot. Oh, my gosh, but sure. Yeah. can you give me maybe a, a top five? Yeah, Diet, vitamin D on everyone. It's just so important for immune system health. And immune system health is so important as we age because our immune systems eventually fail us. And because of that, we develop things like infections and, and cancer. Um, the, the immune systems are intimately tied to our ability to, to 
um, protect ourselves from virulent diseases. And so vitamin D is just fundamental to immune system health. And most people are spending 90% of their time indoors. Um, I was going to say, and here in California, you would think it isn't a problem. You would think it's not a problem, and but then I have people, I have patients in in LA who go surfing regularly, and they have vitamin D of thirty. It's not high enough. And then, you know, for a woman who is probably hitting menopause or perimenopausal, I would definitely want to look at her, her hormones. So I would look at a, um, you know, a dried urine hormone testing. It's like basically like full meta- the full hormone metabolism picture. So sex hormone metabolism cortisol metabolism and there's a few other markers that they measure around like melatonin and um, things like testosterone and the good all the good stuff um, so I want to look at hormones especially and then iron metabolism for women is just always an issue and even for a lot of women who are older they they, they develop things like fibroids and they end up with anemia there's also quite a lot of hemochromatosis that's undiagnosed and um, I always like to look at ferritin as a marker of iron, iron metabolism because if it's extra high it's also a marker of inflammation so ferritin is really important to me and then what else would I look at I mean I like to look at um, this test called a NutriVal because I like to look at micronutrients to see if they're, are they getting a healthy diet. I can basically take this test and know if they're getting the appropriate amounts of omega-3s, of micronutrients through plant-based um, phytonutrients. I can look at if they're getting enough amino acids, if they have any amino, amino acid imbalances. And it also gives me a decent look at the Krebs cycle. So I can actually see if there's any issues with their metabolism mm. of different things. The Krebs cycle being... Um, it's our – so our, our bodies have mitochondria and the mitochondria have different met- metabolic machinery for using carbohydrates or fat as fuel. So using this um, test, you can actually see if there's any issues in these pathways that are causing them to be – to have basically any problems with metabolism, for example. There's a lot of things that can impair metabolism that we don't look at like heavy metals. So um, – Certain things like mercury can cause defects in these pathways. Do you think mitochondrial health is underappreciated by the medical profession? 100%. I mean, it's one of my biggest interests right now because – but it's also something that like I don't – it's not the first thing that I look at because a lot of what you do upstream will affect it downstream. Um, But mitochondrial health – I mean – Fasting and reducing sugar is like the best thing you can do for optimizing your mitochondrial health because autophagy is partially related to optimizing um, mitochondria and and mitophagy is a thing that they that they talk about um, in all the literature around health span that fasting can help um, basically enhance mitochondrial health. We did a, an episode about NR, the, sure, the vitamin B three yeah. supplement that yep. is a lot of press about it at sure, the moment, like NAD supplements to, to boost essentially to boost yeah. NAD. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? Like niagen yeah. and Elysium? That's exactly what we did. Um, I think they're great. I think there's a lot of promise to them. I used to kind of write them off a little bit, but the more research that I do, the more I'm like, no, there's actually some real real serious science to this. Um, it's still it's still a little bit too expensive, unfortunately, but I, 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 I've taken them in the past. I think they tend to be they tend to work better for people who are older, interestingly. Um, I think they're probably best used as you get older, kind of like melatonin's probably probably best to use as you get older. As your body starts um, de- being more depleted in these things, um, you tend to get a bigger effect change. So someone who's young may not need it as much as someone who's older. Hmm. So your patients clearly will pay a significant amount of money mm-hmm. for your expertise. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, for those people who can't afford yeah. that, what best can they do when they go to their doctor sure. and they're in there for 
10 or 15 minutes, mm-hmm. that crucial consultation, maybe once a year if they yeah. are lucky. What should they be asking the doctor? I think a lot of people are not getting like full blood panels from their doctors. And they're getting like a few metabolic biomarkers. But I do like at a baseline, like, you know, like for, for the blood, I do, um, you know, you can get like 70 biomarkers for about $400. And that and, – and I've gotten the cost down dramatically. But like $400 is still a lot of money for a lot of people to spend. But there's a lot of data in just blood tests. And so I think that like even though I'm doing urine and I'm doing stool, I'm doing wearables, I'm doing all these other fancy tests, um, the basic blood tests you can get from your doctor that are overlooked are things like CRP, homocysteine, um, lipoprotein particle analysis of your cholesterol, a lot of people are just getting regular cholesterol panels. And they don't know if they have problems with LPA. They don't know if they have problems with um, LDL particle B patterns. Um, They don't know if they, you know, like high-resolution CRP is a great marker for for inflammation. Even just a white blood cell count is really helpful because if it trends up too high, that's actually not great for longevity. And then if you get a bunch of these, there's actually um, a company that that my friend started and it's like a, it's a website and it's called, it's not, there's a few companies. There's like, there's inner age by uh, this Harvard researcher that works with basically a bunch of biomarkers for detecting what he thinks your, your, your real age would be. And then there's also um, Alexander Zavarankov has a website that like you plug in these biomarkers and it can give you what your biological versus your chronological age would be. Yeah. So like you, they're starting, we're starting to get some really fun, ways to, to biohack your own labs, but you need to get those labs in the first place. Um, my friend Joe Cohen at Self-Hacked has a platform as well. I really like his platform. You know, getting all, getting the numbers and starting to interpret them and figuring out what they mean is like part of your job as a human. And and expecting your doctor to do it all for you for what he's being paid to do is just not realistic because doctors aren't paid for health. They're paid for sickness. The, the healthcare system is a sickness billing industrial complex. And this is going back to the old paradigm, isn't it? Yeah. And so if you want extra, you have to pay a little extra. And the thing is, is that someday we're going to be able to prove to insurance companies that this is going to expand people's health and reduce morbidity and probably mortality. But until we get to that point where insurance companies really are bought into this, we have to spend a little bit extra money out of pocket. So I get an HSA. And I use that funding that I, that's tax-free to pay for my labs. Yeah. I, actually, I've just got one as well. That's and great. I think, again, underappreciated by a lot of people. But yeah. purely – we're talking here in the United States. Maybe this isn't applicable around the world. But uh, purely from a, a tax uh, management perspective, it seems to make sense. I think so. Yeah. Is there a danger that we over-test? And uh, th- that question stems partially from going back quite a few years when a lot of interest in whole body scans. Yeah. And I-, I remember doing a story about it and getting a lot of criticism from people saying, well, is there a danger of false positives here? Uh, uh, are we going, are we overstepping that mark? I think it depends on the type of test and what you're testing for. Like, yes, we are definitely over testing with CTs. I mean, CAT scans are a lot of radiation. It's like 100 x-rays, every CAT scan. So... If you can avoid getting a CT scan, yeah, don't do that. Now, are we over-testing? I mean, like, everyone's going to argue with me that, yes, I'm an over-tester. But I also am not so obsessed with, like, necessarily that individual biomarker in as much as the patterns that I see over time. So when I look at, like, you know, the the blood labs of a person change over time over the course of working with with them for a year, like, someone might say, well, you know, doc, it's, like, been six months and I don't feel that much different. And then we look at their labs and they've gone from the red range in multiple biomarkers 
to the yellow range to the green range. And now it's like I'm like I'm showing them that like they're basically aging in reverse on in, in terms of their biomarkers. And to me, it's like that's helpful because you don't always notice the effects of your changes as fast as you notice the blood blood labs change. So I'm a big fan of testing more often. I like to test every three months. Interesting. Actually, you just reminded me something. Going back to the conversation about fasting, uh, there's lots of elements and lots of benefits to fasting. We focused in our conversation mostly on the things that you can feel and see now. Mm-hmm. And for most people, that is fat loss, weight loss. There's a longer term perspective to fasting and there's things going on inside our bodies that we can't see that may in 20 or 30 years time, and I'm thinking of cancer prevention, yeah. that uh, could be a huge benefit and could potentially be the biggest benefit of fasting? Well, like I have a, I had a friend who emailed me. He's a young guy. He's really healthy. And he says, Molly, I got my, my wellness effects labs back and everything's fine except for my LPA is really high. And everything I seem to read online says that you can't do anything about it. And I go, well, that's funny because I just read in Jason Fung's book, The Complete Guide to Fasting, that somebody reported dropping their LPA dramatically through fasting regularly. And he, and I mean, that's just one thing you can do. And just tell us what LPA. Um, lipoprotein A. It's, um, it's, it's a largely genetic marker of cardiovascular risk, essentially. Right. You know, so he's very concerned about it. And I'm like, you know, I used to think that it was just fully genetic and that you couldn't do anything about it. But now there's all these case reports of people dropping their LPA through fasting. So, you know, maybe there, maybe there are things we can do. Mm. I mean, part of the reason why I am such a big believer that fasting should be a part of our lives is, you know, I did research on all these different diseases that could help and cancer reduction in animals dramatically, cardiovascular disease risk reduction, hypertension reduction, improving heart rate variability, reducing cholesterol, reducing blood sugar, and reducing risks of autoimmune diseases. I mean, like, there's a lot of benefits to it. And these are a lot of things that, by the way, run in my family. So, like, I was like, wow, I could um, take all these supplements, which I do, but or I could maybe just start fasting more. And... You know, I think fasting is actually a lot a lot easier than people realize. It's just we're so adapted to just eating all the time. And we're so we're so stuck on this sort of like treadmill, the hedonic treadmill of food. And the problem with that is that it's like it's always about that next hit. And every meal is is a is in a lot of cases for a lot of people their next hit of the food addiction that they have. Hmm. So you know, there's it's funny. It's funny. There's actually um this group called Over- Overeaters Anonymous, and I don't necessarily recommend people go there because there's like a religious component to it. But pretty much all they espouse is don't eat refined sugar, don't eat artificial sweeteners, don't eat. Basically, they say don't eat any sugar, don't eat any refined flour products, and. That's like all they tell people to do because that actually can reprogram your brain and your dopaminergic signaling pathways to be less obsessed with food. And when you get when you become less obsessed with food, then your body can actually start adapting naturally to like what it you know, what it wants to be eating, which mm. is whole natural foods. Yeah, there are other. There's some simple big changes we can all make. You it is a ge- it, look. It's taken me years to do this stuff. Right. Exactly. Years. Like first, uh, now getting rid of refined carbs is like really hard, but it's taken me, I mean, I've done it over the last few years. Increasing my vegetable intake to six cups a day has also taken me years. Reducing my sugar intake to almost zero. I mean, I eat dates and fruit. Do you intake those vegetables as vegetables, in other words, raw vegetables? I eat or? them as vegetables, like cooked and, and raw. Right. So they're not a smoothie, maybe? Um, I don't really do as many smoothies anymore, right. mostly because, um, I mean, like I like smoothies, but to me, um, you're actually, people don't understand this, but... When you 
put something in a smoothie, even if you're putting a lot of fiber in it, you're still turning that fiber into powder. And so you are getting rid of some of the fiber benefits. There's almost an element of processing. There. You're basically chewing the food with a bunch of um, rotating teeth. So like <laughs> you are breaking down the food and, and it's I don't think it's a problem necessarily, but there are certain – you know, there's there's some fiber that you are going to break down more in the in the um, in the smoothie. But like, if it means that you're going to get the vegetables in your body, then 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 do it. Right, so I asked the question about vegetables because I think that just observing people that is the barrier of just the practicality of eating vegetables. It's yeah, a preparation. A, whole, a piece of broccoli, carrot, whatever it is. I mean, I I, I meal prep vegetable, vegetables like once or twice a week. So I always have fresh vegetables in my fridge. It's just like... That's the secret, isn't it? It's really the secret. It's just preparation. It's like people look at these these like bodybuilders, and I'm not condoning bodybuilding, but they look at these people and they're like, oh my God, they're like so amazing. And like all they're really doing is like regimenting what they do in the gym and in the kitchen. They have like very specific amounts of foods that they're consuming on a day-to-day basis. And they're like playing with their metabolism with amount like with the amount of carbs and fats that they consume and the amount of protein that they consume. It's it's like fascinating to me, but it's also like it's it, the key is is that we need to we just we all need to start looking at our food as our medicine. Some people are looking at food as performance enhancing food, right? They're like they're regimenting their foods to the point where they like get some sort of outcome that they want. We we all need to look at our food as this opportunity to like dose ourselves every day with things that are going to make us as healthy and fit and happy as possible. It took me years to do this, but like every year I would choose a different vegetable color that I would just add more of. I, I was like, this is really simple. I'll see more green things this year. The next year it was red things. The next year it was yellow things. The next year it was purple things. Before I knew it, I was just eating all the rainbow. And now I like crave, 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 crave vegetables. And in fact, when I did a month on keto earlier this year, I really found it really problematic because I just couldn't eat enough vegetables. Like, And I was just like – my body was like, I can't wait to just shove my face with salad. And it was just like I don't eat a bunch of crap on it. Like you can really screw up a salad with just adding too much nonsense to it. But like – you have to kind of fall in love with things that are good with good for you. And to me, that's just the secret. It's just like learn to love things that you think are not good. <laughs> you mentioned supplements a little while ago. Oh, yeah. How many do you take a day? Oh, man. I should show you my bottle. <laughs> so I have a custom compound that I make myself. And um, normally it's around 10 to 12 pills. But this one is about 18 because I experimented with adding a prenatal into it. So I took a prenatal formula that I, de- I designed and I added it to my custom. So now it's 18. Um, but it's got milk thistle. It's got, you know, all my bees. It's got, um, you know, a few other detox supplements. It's got It's got a bunch of things in it that, to me, make me feel awesome every day. And most of the things that are in the supplement are based off of my labs. So I put things in there based on what I'm seeing in the data. And if you had the in commas, the perfect utopian diet, mm-hmm. would it be possible to get all those supplements without taking them as extra? Um, you would still want, I mean, like, not everybody wants to eat turmeric every day, necessarily. Like, I like turmeric, and I have a bunch of it in my fridge. I, like, literally have a, ter- a ferment- lacto-fermented turmeric paste that I made myself. Like, yeah, I do that. Um, but I find that, like, green tea, for example, I really like green tea. But if I drink 10 cups, which I did when I was fasting, I'm getting a lot of caffeine. So EECG is a nice thing you can take out of the, the tea, put it into a supplement, and you don't have to have the benefit. You don't have to have all the caffeine in it. So there's certain reasons why you, you might want to add things to a supplement versus 
Um, and like vitamin D, like, yes, if I lived outside, it would be a different story. But even though I try to spend a lot of time outdoors, I'm still not getting as much sun as I would like. So, um, you know, I think, yes, you could probably get it from a perfect diet. But most of our food supply is, unfortunately, the soil that we're growing things on is being more and more depleted every day. Mm. So, you know, that's the saddest thing about our environment is that we do not realize how much the way that we live our lives and the way that we are just, you know, we're really harming the environment, how that is harming our bodies, how that's harming our access to nutrients and food. And so, you know, like it's it, we're not living in the same kind of food environment that we were 50 years ago. And of course, the ultimate goal here, and um, we talked about it at the beginning, is health span. This right. phrase that I use a lot, I'm sure you do yep. as well. What is your definition? I think it's as simple as the number of years that we have living healthy, free of disease and disability. It's the concept of compression of morbidity. And the definition of morbidity is disability and frailty. And so, you know, having seen grandparents of mine decline over the course of many years and just to be debilitated by disease, I said to myself, this is not going to be my destiny. This is not going to – this doesn't have to be our lives. There are enough cultures in the world where people thrive into old age with energy and vitality that we we just are accepting of this experience because it's so commonplace. And it's so sad to me that we have made diabetes seem like a inevitable disease in a culture that essentially just wants to treat it with pills and is totally okay – with pay, like the government paying seventy thousand dollars to give people artificial limbs because they had to have a limb amputated, what if we spent that money on keeping them healthier earlier in their lives? What if we spent some of that money on keeping children healthier and in establishing good habits younger in life? Like, what if we spent it on teaching pregnant mothers how important it is for them to have good blood sugar control? Because if they don't have good blood sugar control, they are programming the metabolism of their children to have detrimental effects later in life. So I think that we have it all wrong. We are spending way too much money later in life giving marginal benefits to people, and we are not investing in health when we're young. And really the unfortunate truth is that if we want to get another 20 years of life into the American population, we have to start investing in health when we're young. It cannot be when we're 50 and 60. That is too late. I'm, I, I, have to, I have to be a, like a vocal person about this because I don't feel like enough people realize that like you can't just say you don't care. Like I cared about my health when I was young. In fact, one of the things that was really interesting is that I thought I was caring about my health when I was young when I was actually pushing myself, burning myself into the ground with way too much work. So like we need to reconceptualize the way we even understand health. And it's not so much, well, it's it's partly not caring, but it's also that young person's image of them getting older, thinking, I'll deal with it then, or oh, they'll have found a cure by then. Sure. I can smoke now, it's okay, because right. by the time I'm 50, it, it won't be a problem anymore, yep. which is hugely misguided, of it's course. It's totally misguided. And, you know, the, the the bigger problem that I have is that it's also this mantra in our culture that, like, oh, the healthcare system will take care of me, or Social Security will take care of me, or Medicare will take care of me. That is not going to be the case when we are grown-ups. Like, when we are older... We, I, I'm just not convinced that we are going to have health care available for everybody if we continue with the level of disease that we have today. Um, it's just too expensive. And so it's bankrupting, it's bankrupting our country. It's far too much of the GDP. It's not, it does not make economic sense. And so I think that um, the, the thing that we need to think about is reconceptualizing health 
as – instead of being this um, complete absence of disease or infirmary, it's the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. And that means that it's not about managed care, okay? The healthcare system managing your care is not enabling you to adapt and self-manage. It's managing you. That is not – if that is not what we we need to be teaching people, we need to be teaching people that you need to take control of your health. You need to have ownership over your destiny. You this is your body, and you have responsibility for it. And we're not teaching children that, and that's the problem. We're teaching children by the way that we train them, by the way that parents basically use food to pacify them, the way that my even one of my family members uses packaged process. Um, cake, not really cake, but crackers to make her daughter calm down. What she doesn't realize is that she's putting your kid on this glycemic roller coaster and the kid's brain is responding to that insulin surge and that blood sugar surge and that drop. And that she's giving, by giving her these foods, she's actually programming her to associate food with I'm okay. And the problem is, is that you need to be able to be okay without food. Because that's actually what our bodies are designed to do. We're designed to be able to survive long periods of time without food. And, you know, like that's what we've lost. It's a fundamental re-education, not only of uh, medical practitioners, but everyone. It is. From what you're saying. It's a fundamental worldview shift. Um, I, mean, I mean, look, I would love for the invention of calorie restriction memetics hmm. and exercise memetics to come. I would love for, that, for me to be able to take a tool – and just take a supplement and get all the benefits from not having to fast and work out because, frankly, it's hard work. But I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> like, I don't think it's going to happen. I just and don't I, think it's going to happen. I've looked at this a lot over the years. and I don't know that I want it to happen necessarily. I actually quite like my exercise. Yeah. I, I love exercise. sweating. But you know exercise is taking me years tired. to get back into too. Yeah. I was actually fairly sedentary during my 20s. I was very fit during my, my teens. I was a competitive runner, got into my 20s, started studying, 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 studying. It was very sedentary. And then late 20s started coming upon me and I said, oh, God, I can't believe that I think I'm espousing health optimization and I'm not exercising enough. So I started walking 10,000 steps a day. I started – I stopped driving to work. And then I started, um, you know, taking longer routes to work. And then I started um, doing kettlebell workouts with apps on my phone. And then I started doing like the seven-minute workout. And then I started weightlifting. And then I started doing yoga again. And then I started running again. And then I started, you know, doing these things that were more challenging. But it was a slow, gradual progression to a place of better fitness. And that's how people need to think about health. They need to stop looking for quick fixes. And they need to start recognizing it takes years to make your body shift. If you have someone like me helping you, I can accelerate the process dramatically, but you still need to put in the work. And that means like I have to – I look at exercise as 4% of my day. I'm starting to – I'm starting this um, meditation program. It's an hour of my day. 4% of my day is going to go to meditation. And you prioritize it? I have to now. I've signed up for this program. Like I'm doing it. You know, I'm like committed to it. But the more that you commit – But you want to do it. I do want to do it because I want – so one of my goals at the beginning of the year was I want to be able to maintain – the best brain function and the best relationship function despite anything that life hits me, which means I want to be able to be calm under pressure. I want to be able to be the best version of myself under stress. 
And to get to that point, you have to actually have to give your bodies a little bit of stress over time to get your body acclimated to doing things like this. So, for example, I was fasting while I was traveling from Israel to Lebanon. And you're not supposed to do that. And I did it anyway. And I did get stuck in Lebanon for three and a half hours. And I did get through. But I, I, it was a tenuous process of, you know, taking my statement and going to the military court and figuring out what was I doing in Israel. Um, two, I told them two years ago, but I was just there. And I was fasting the whole time. And I was like so calm, so collected, not sweating, having a good time, joking around in the back of this windowless room filled with cigarette smoke. And I'm like – I did it. Like I actually brought myself to a place where I can be under serious stress and I can be perfectly calm. And I just used my iPhone app or my my Apple Watch app, the breathe function. I I did the breathe and I just started breathing deeply. And I was like, we are such resilient creatures if we want to be. But you have to choose. And the way that you, you become resilient is you have to have control of your life and you have to have a connection to others. And you have to have a sense of purpose. If you have those three things, then you can you can you can be you can adapt to anything that life hits you. But if you don't have those things, then that's where you actually really need to start. Because why do you even need your health if you don't have a purpose for it? Yeah, I agree. That, by the way, the Israel Lebanon story <laughs> and fasting, which you and I know there's a lot more to the story than you yep. just said, which we won't go into now. Yep. But I know you told um, the story to uh, to Jeff Wu. On his oh, did, HPM, yeah. Yeah. his human podcast. Yeah, that was a fun podcast. It's a great podcast, and I thoroughly recommend it. And in fact, it's thanks to Jeff and his team that we're together. Oh, today. yeah, it's true. Because I heard you on there, and I thought it was such a, a great interview that Thank uh, you. I wanted to meet you. So uh, thanks to uh, everyone at Human, because I think they're a great bunch oh, of they're uh, awesome. guys as well. Yeah, excellent. Um, so, final question, and I ask this of everyone, and you, I mean, you've gone into this in some detail already. But what are your own personal aspirations as they apply to your longevity? Do you have a vision of yourself at 90 or 100 years old? Do you, oh, yeah. do you focus on that and, and what is it? I mean, here's the thing. The first thing I want to say is I am okay if I don't get to 100, but I really want to get to my 90s. I really, really do. I want to be fit and I want to be mentally – and that includes mentally fit. You know, I, I want to have a sense of inner calm and inner peace. And I actually do have a lot of – most of the time I have it, but I think that there's going to be a point where um, when – I'm older and I've got grandchildren. I think I'm actually going to probably be more peaceful than I am now. But I think th- I think I want to look back on my life and I want to say that I squeezed everything I could possibly have gotten out of this existence. I don't really think I'm going to have regrets because I'm not the kind of person who lives that way. But I do think that um, I want to have had a few companies behind me. I want to have sold a few companies behind me. <laughs> I want to have a few kids. I want to have grandchildren, hopefully one husband. Um <laughs> You know, like I, I, w- I, I still want to be traveling. You know, like I love travel. It's like one of my favorite things to do. I would have liked to have gone to most of the countries in the world. Um, I don't. I mean, like in terms of health span, like I'm okay with the idea of having to have joints replaced if I need to. I hope I don't need that, but if I do, it's fine. Um, I hope that I have a continuous glucose monitoring patch in, or a continuous glucose monitor implanted so that I have that in-the-moment knowledge. And I hope to have made a big impact on the world in reconceptualizing what health is about and actually challenging people to actually just try harder, you know, and to push themselves further and to take and – to, and to accept, accept um, less mediocrity from their lives. Because we are so capable of so much more than we're doing today. And I think that like life is for society is actually getting better in a lot of ways. But for a lot of people, um, it's 
the simplest lifestyle factors that are holding them back from reaching their full fullest potential. They're stuck at the base of the hierarchy of needs of Maslow's hierarchy, and they are they're not even they're not surviving well. And part of that's really just comes down to food. And so I hope to have made an impact on the food system in some way. Well, I think you're making an impact already. Thank you. This has been a really good conversation. How can people get in touch with you and get involved with what you do? Sure. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Molly Maloof MD, on Twitter, Molly Maloof MD. You can find me on Instagram, drmolly.co, D-R-M-O-L-L-Y.co. I also have a website with that same name. And um, you can email me at mmaloof at gmail. Great. I'll put all of those details on the show notes, in the show notes for this episode at our website. That's llamapodcast.com, double L-A-M-A podcast.com. You can follow us in social media at Llama Podcast. And if you're listening on the Apple podcast platform, you can rate us and review us there. And a positive review would be great. It's certainly very helpful as we move the podcast forward. Molly Maloof, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Peter. And thank you for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.